0: So as we look at this, Isaiah 53, we're going to be looking at the triumphant Messiah. Today, we've been looking at the Messiah, the hope of the Messiah, the unexpected Messiah. Remember, he would be a root out of dry ground, basically something insignificant. The the people were not expecting that form of a Messiah and still to this day are not. Uh, We also looked at the suffering Messiah. We looked at he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was despised and rejected. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. So we see the suffering servant as well, the suffering Messiah. And then now we are seeing here in the ver- last three verses, verses 10 through 12, the triumphant Messiah. So again, just as a, a recap, this is one the two main reasons that I'm proposing today uh, that we know the Hebrew Bible. When I refer to that, again, I'm referring to the Old Testament, uh, but commonly referred to as the Hebrew Bible, one of the big reasons we call it the Hebrew Bible is because the, the vast majority of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, with a couple chapters in Aramaic in the book of Daniel. Uh, but the, as we look at this as well, that uh, Isaiah, it was written in Hebrew, so that's why we refer to the Hebrew Bible. The Jewish people refer to this as also the Hebrew Bible or their Bible. They refer to the New Testament as the Christian Bible, okay? But I would argue that the New Testament is not just a Christian Bible. It's also a Jewish Bible as well. Why is that? Because the the message itself is Jewish. It's the fulfillment of the Jewish prophecies, the Old Testament prophecies. and also reveals something very important as well, that the disciples, they're Jewish, and our Savior himself was Jewish. And so with the possible exception of Luke uh, as well, that, by the way, there's some argument that... that, uh, that uh, Luke himself was Jewish. How do we know that? He was a doctor. So there you go. Okay. <laughs> All right. You'll hear that explained from some folks. But nonetheless, as we think about that, this is a Jewish concept. And I think a lot of times we read the Bible from Gentile eyes we forget the foundations are are Jewish and there's so there's some value in looking at that. Remember a couple weeks ago we did the Messiah and the Passover Seder. We did that downstairs and really kind of seeing different elements and different symbols really highlight of why Jesus came to this word, to this earth. Yes, to save us from our sins. Give us the hope of of heaven for sure, but also he did that to fulfill that which was spoken by the prophets. So very important as we see this. So in knowing the Hebrew Bible, there's two key things we want to point out. We've been sharing this for the past couple weeks. Number one is the messianic hope of the Old Testament enables believers to have confidence in the Scriptures. So when you read Isaiah 53, and then you read the life of Christ in the New Testament, that together should give us confidence. That the Bible is true gives us confidence in the Scriptures. The second element, the Messianic hope, is foundational for identifying Jesus as the true Messiah. Okay, so this is foundational. So who is the Messiah? How would you know if if you were in Israel two thousand years ago? How would you know Jesus was Messiah or this person is a Messiah or that person is a Messiah? You would have to look at one particular place, and that is the, the the Messianic hope of the Old Testament. I would argue today as well that the, me- the overall message of the Old Testament is a messianic hope. That's right. That is the thread that we see through the Old Testament. This is why it's critical for us to have at least even somewhat of a basic understanding of that. But again, today in today's world, there's a lot of questions on who is the Messiah? Who is this promised one that's been been called for? And so today we're going to be kind of looking at a few different options as well. In uh, we're going to, force find the true option, but we're going to see here in within history of who that is. But here's the message, the great message here of Isaiah 53. And remember that Isaiah 53 is the fourth of the servant songs of Isaiah. There's four altogether beginning uh, in chapter 42 up until now. There's four different what we call servant songs. This is the last of them, the suffering servant. And all these are telling Israel that there's going to be basically the children of Israel are about ready to go into exile. They're about ready. In just a few years, they're going to be going into captivity in the Lord of Israel, into Assyria. And then later on, 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon comes and takes what we refer to as Judah, Judea, away into Babylon, into exile. And so all this was to prepare them... How would they then come out of exile that there's going to be a greater deliverer that's going to come greater even than Moses? We talked on Wednesday night of a prophet like unto Moses. So when you hear him, you should listen to him and obey him. Okay. and so what would happen? What do you look for? So the purpose of this song of Isaiah 53 is for all to believe in the servant whom God has sent. That's the purpose. When you read this, it says in verse, chapter 53, verse 1, Who hath believed our report? Or who hath believed this message that we've received? What's the message about? It's the message of the servant. To whom is the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's the power of God and the mighty works that God would do. How would you know of God's servant? How would you know of, his, uh, of these works? It's by looking at the Redeemer who is to come. When Jesus comes on the scene, he reveals that arm through the mighty works Who his miracles he did, the teachings he taught, and of course by his death, his burial, and the resurrection of our great Lord. So this is very important as we see this. Okay, But again, there's been questions through the years of exactly who is the Messiah. I again say this, that when Jesus came on the scene to a lot of Jewish people at the time, and especially to the leaders, Jesus was a disappointment. Jesus was a disappointment to them. Why? They were looking for a redeemer, a deliverer from Rome from Roman oppression, from the struggles that they had. They were looking for that type of redeemer, that type of Messiah. But it's interesting that they really missed it. They missed it because the Messiah would come, first of all, as a suffering servant, not just to deliver them from Rome, but deliver them from their sins. This is the important thing that we see in, in Isaiah 53. So in looking at this, I want to say that throughout history... There has been many so-called messiahs. I mentioned a few weeks ago of a guy by the name of Simon Bar Kokhba. That, again, that was about a hundred years ish after Jesus was here on Earth, and of course, uh, he actually led actually for a couple years. Israel did have an independence from Rome. There was coins minted. There was a government established. Uh, there was, in fact, it's interesting that he was in a sense a false messiah. Uh, rabbi Akiva, who believe it or not, he wasn't even Jewish, but he was a rabbi. It's interesting. Uh, that's another story for another time, okay? Um, but anyways, it's interesting that here he comes to the Messiah, and here is, in a sense, Akiba is, in a sense, a false prophet. Now, that's not popular in Jewish circles. He's very renowned. But it's interesting that he, they led Israel astray for that time. And who was caught in the mix of that? It was the true believers in Jesus during that time very interesting. But through the years, I have here, and this is in my library, this book here, called 50 Jewish Messiahs. This is not this is from a Jewish source. It's not, not a Christian or anyone else. This is simply Jewish history. 50 Jewish Messiahs from Bar Kokhba, after Jesus, to even today. And again, there's a lot more than just 50, but these are more the well-known ones that are there. And uh, if you read it, it's, I mean, your head will spin. It's that type of story. But I want to share with you the most recent Messiah, if you will. There's some that are around here today, but probably the most famous um, Messiah. By the way, Jewish Messiahs have come and gone through the years. Many have become heroes. Some become martyrs. But a common belief in Judaism, here's the important thing. A common belief in Judaism is that there is a potential Messiah in every age. That's kind of how they view it. Uh, but in the 20th century, perhaps the best-known Messiah... Was a man by the name of Menachem Schneerson. Menachem Mendel Schneerson. Okay? I actually have here in my pocket, we were going through paperwork the other day, and Manny showed me, hey, I got this little card here, and you can see the bigger version on the screen. Okay? But, anyways, this is, it says here Moshiach, or Messiah. Okay? And then here you see a sign on the right Moshiach, or Messiah is here. Just add goodness and kindness, long live the Rebbe, the Rabbi, King, Messiah forever. Okay? So who is this guy? How many have ever heard of this guy? Menachem Schneerson. A couple. Okay. So it's interesting. Menachem Schneerson was the, it's, he's the seventh Rebbe of the Lubavitcher Chabad, which is a sect of Orthodox Judaism. I'll be honest with you, a lot of them are pretty happy-go-lucky guys. Okay? Um, they're kind of kind of charismatic in how they, they approach life and all that. But nonetheless, uh he was the leader of them for for many years. He actually became, he was born in 1902 in Russia and eventually came to the United States and uh, he, uh, the sect that they have is in Crown Heights in Brooklyn, New York and that's where the group is headquartered, okay? He became the leader of the Chabad in 1951 after his father-in-law, who was the previous Rebbe, he became the next Rebbe, the next great leader in the movement. Now this isn't, this is a minority sect, by the way. This is not, all of Orthodox Judaism. This is kind of a sect of it, okay? However, that he was well-respected and well-sought-after for advice and for every area of life. Uh, he also had a very big passion for moral values that would be taught in education. He actually, it or not, became very good friends with President Ronald Reagan. Um, in fact, he was recognized for, for many different uh, things, and in fact, there were some official proclamations that were done in honor of Rabbi Schneerson, uh, that was done by Ronald Reagan. Very interesting uh, interesting guy. But because of his teachings and then his reported miracles that he did, many of his followers believed him to be the Messiah. They also noted, it's interesting, that he became the rabbi in 1951 and that was just shortly after World War II and the Holocaust and then the state of Israel being established in 1948. And so many saw him basically emerging as the Messiah after these supposed birth pangs. Now, that's their words. Have you ever heard the word birth pangs when it comes to Bible prophecy? The Jewish people have a version of that as well. Okay, so they viewed him as that. And then through the years, and finally in 1992, he suffered a stroke and then passed away in 1994. So some interpreted uh, the fact that Schneerson suffered a stroke is the fact that he was the one who was identified as the one who was acquainted with grief. He was the one who bore our sins and carried our sorrows. He carried the seasons. So because he had a stroke, that's why he was the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. And then he eventually died as well. He was very well-renowned. Okay, And so it's interesting this, that when, when uh, the Rebbe died, when Schneerson passed away, that his followers, many of his followers, waited outside of his grave there in Brooklyn for three days, waiting for him to rise again. Where would they get that from? Not the, not, it's not the New Testament. It's not the New Testament, okay? Remember, that's a, a, a Christian Bible, okay? So they think of Hosea, maybe some other passages as well. Nonetheless, they're waiting for his resurrection. And even till this day, it's been no 30-some years later, almost 30 years later, that the... These this sect of Judaism, as some of it, there's a division in it now, but they some still claim him to be the Messiah that still will come at an appropriate time. So it's very interesting. So I want to take you to Israel right now, and I want you to see this house. This is a place called Kafar Chabad, uh, the village of the Chabad, which is the the uh, the organization that they're with. Okay, and so this house here is actually identical to the one that they have in Crown Heights, New York, in Brooklyn. The 770, the address there in Crown Heights. And so they built this here some years ago. If if you're traveling from Tel Aviv to the Ben Gurion Airport, you will drive past this. I mean, it sticks out. It's very different from other Israeli houses. It sticks out big time on the highway. Okay, so you're there on Highway 1, you see it. So this is the exact building. So this group here, the Israeli version of this, they have that as ready for Schneerson when he does finally resurrect. Okay? They have this ready to go. Now, again, this is not a huge sect. This is a, this is a small minority. Uh, so this is very interesting a, as we see this. So, again, there are Kabad works that are, they're around the world. I mean, talk about their missionaries. They go around the world and they try to revive Judaism and all that. We have even one here in Maple Grove. That's here, a Chabad center, who follows this teaching. Okay? So it's kind of interesting. This, happened, this is in our own neighborhood as well, folks. Okay? This is like, wow, never thought of this before. But nonetheless, it's interesting to me that uh, while belief in Schneerson as the Messiah is, is held by just a small minority of Jewish people, it's interesting to see, though, how they interpreted the suffering sermon of Isaiah 53 as an individual. Remember I said a couple weeks ago that if you talk to more orthodox Jewish people, or to rabbis, or you can search online, their uh, interpretation of Isaiah 53 is that the suffering servant is the nation of Israel. They were the ones that had been despised. They have been the ones that were basically led as lambs to the slaughter. They would point out things like the Holocaust. Look what happened to our people, for example. They would point out that, and they would argue that there's other passages in Isaiah where the, suffering, where the servant is Israel. In some passages, God's servant is Israel. But in here, there's like a a switch because this is talking more about an individual. We believe that. But here's the thing. Here's a group of Orthodox Jews that said, no, this isn't about Israel. This is about an individual. This is about Rabbi Schneerson because he suffered a stroke and did all these miracles and all that. But here's the thing. And this is what I challenge us to do. When you take a closer look at at the plain text of Scripture, and you compare that Scripture with Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, we see here that Schneerson cannot be the one who, who Isaiah wrote about. Very simple. The Messiah, according to Micah 5, is to be born where? You know this. Christmas time, where is he born? Bethlehem, okay? Schneerson was born in Russia. By the way, Schneerson never, ever, once stepped foot in Israel. That's right. Never did. Okay? Schneerson was not born of a virgin. No. Okay? He was not this promised one. He did not leave uh, or lead people back. Okay? And so the idea is that he would become as the triumphant, the king, Messiah. Okay? Again, he is referred to as Mashiach, Messiah. Okay? Very important as we see that. So here's the point then today. What then are we supposed to make of Isaiah 53? It's not Schneerson. Who then should we look? And who do we point our Jewish friends, who is the Messiah? Yeshua. But how do we know that? Okay? When you look only at the Old Testament, how do you know that? We're going to look at how do you use the Old Testament and the Old Testament. Okay, so that's what we're working on today. Okay, so there's only, here's the point. There's only one true Messiah, folks. There's only one true Messiah. And today we're going to look at that he is the triumphant Messiah. He's a Messiah who triumphs. Now remember that this song here, this servant song, actually begins not at 53 verse 1. You go back to Isaiah 52 verse 13. And you see those three verses there. It says, "...behold, my servant shall deal prudently, he shall be exalted and extolled, shall be very high." Okay, and then those three verses they really mirror ver- verses uh, ten through twelve of chapter fifty three. They kind of work as bookends of this passage. That's very important. But in the first tans- stanza, we see here that the servant is promised the Lord's servant is promised exaltation despite his humiliation. It says that his visage was marred more than any man. Okay, that's verse fourteen. So he would be exalted despite that he would be humiliated. But in the last three verses of this, verses 10 through 12, we see that the servant is promised to be exalted because he was humiliated. That's the difference. The first one is despite he was humiliated. Here, he is because he was humiliated. That's what we're going to see here today. Okay, so a little bit of the outline I will share to you today is um, the the main points are not original with me. They're with from Dr. Michael Rydelnik, who's a Jewish believer uh, in Jesus, and I thought he did a very good job organizing this. So I do have to mention that. Okay, so uh, I'm not going to plagiarize, folks. Okay, I'm going to give credit where credits due. But nonetheless, we'll fill, in the, we'll fill in the, we got the bones, we're going to fill in the body now, okay? So let's look at it very quickly. First of all, there's three things we're going to notice about the Messiah, the suffering servant. That the Messiah, to be triumphant, he will be restored, serving as a substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. He will be restored. What do we mean by that? So we again, the verses before, v- before verse 10, we talked about had, he was led out of the sheep to the slaughter. Uh, he was... Uh, he made his grave with the wicked, a rich in his death. He suffered a very gruesome death. We see that, okay? In verse 10, though, things change. And now we're going to see something very important. It says, It pleased the Lord to bruise him, he hath, or to crush him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. First thing I want to say is this. That when it says, it pleased the Lord to bruise him, and it's saying that God was taking pleasure, he was giddy that his son was being killed. That's not the idea that we have here. The idea is basically that it went according to the purposes and divine will of God. In other words, Jesus' death was no accident. It was determined by God. Uh, Peter, preaching on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, actually mentions that, that this was determined by God, according to the prophets. Okay, so this was in, this was in, in line. God took no pleasure in the death of his son, but willed or pleased, or willed to bruise him or to crush him. The idea of bruise here, and it kind of goes back to what we read earlier, um, that in verse five he was bruised for iniquities. The bruising has the idea of it's not just you know we think of a bruise you know you're playing uh, broom ball I'm going to pick on Scott he gets whapped in the arm or something like that he gets a little bit of bruise right you can you can shake that off right you'll heal. But the idea of bruising here is the idea of crushing. It has really a more intense idea. It basically means someone who suffered a mortal wound, is the idea. Someone who is being put to death. Okay, very important as we see that. And so, but we see here that the purpose of it was what? Why was the servant bruised, crushed, killed violently? It's because to give the ultimate purpose of providing salvation. That's what we have. The servant's exaltation came because he made himself, it says here in verse 10, an offering for sin. This is referring to, um, tonight, by the way, we're going to do a little bit of the the Torah's messianic message. Uh, We're going to do that tonight, so we'll kind of dig into this a little bit more this evening. But what this is referring to is the guilt or trespass offering found in Leviticus chapter 5, and six. Okay? So this is a certain type of offering that is it's referring to, the offering for sin. And this offering, just to us know, was an offering for restitution of a wrong that someone had committed against God or another person. It provided this offering, which was a ram, it provided atonement for a wrong committed and restitution for the offended party. So in other words, let's say you and your neighbor were just fighting it out, something like that, and maybe you broke his prize pottery. I don't know, something like that. Something really went bad. You're trying to make amends. So you do a trespass, a guilt offering. So you bring a ram for a sacrifice, and then you'd also pay restitution, a little bit about, basically about 20%, you would pay to your neighbor as well to make ends meet. You would basically be reconciled, if you will, or restitution. So the idea is this. This is the the message that we, we have here. But also as we think about this, remember we talked about this a couple of weeks ago now that when we talked about the Messiah who is despised, rejected, acquainted with grief, the idea of grief there is the word diseases. And what this means here is referring to uh, a leper. This is the idea, the idea of someone who is uh, sick, who is really sick. And again, we said that Jesus himself, when he was on this earth, we do not have any record that he was physically sick. But we do know that he associated and identified with the sick. Remember he, when he healed, especially the lepers, that he went and touched the leper. Anyone else touched a leper, even a priest, they themselves would become unclean, even if they were doing service. Jesus, when he touched the leper, he he remained pure. That's the idea. Okay. So the goal, though, remember what happened when a leper was uh, found he had leprosy he would be cast outside the camp until he was healed or brought back in. But the goal of cleansing the leper was what? To bring a leper back into the camp, all right? And this is exactly why Jesus died for us. When he came and he was that substitute, that offering for sin, he basically paid that price, that sacrifice for us that we could as spiritual lepers to be brought back in the camp. You see, folks, our sin... Our sin has separated us from a holy God. We have that fellowship that's been broken. Just like that leper has that fellowship broken because of their disease that they can't do anything about. Folks, you can't do anything about your sin. You need a cleanser. You need someone to do that. And that is the suffering servant. That's why Jesus went and suffered this horrific death and became a trespass for us. But folks, good news. As John the Baptist said, Jesus is that sacrifice, the Lamb of God, that taketh away the sin of the world. That should give us hope. That gives us hope for sinners, folks. There is hope. The idea here in Isaiah 53 is that Israel, the whole nation, is sinful. And they need to be brought back, and they need someone to lead them. And that's the idea. It was the idea of bringing them back in, back to, out of exile. Back to the camp and restore them to be his proper servants and priests. Remember, back in Exodus, what happened? God said, I, these, these people are going to be a kingdom of priests, a special nation, a peculiar people, a prized tr- possession to me. But guess what? They don't want that. And they rebelled against God. And we see that Israel's history has been going down and down and down. And finally, God, God says, that's enough. I'm going to do something about it. He steps in. He sends his, ser- his servant, his Messiah, to come and bring Israel back into fellowship with Himself, that they could once again become His servants, His priests upon this earth. Very important, okay. But let's talk about a little bit more about His uh, restoration, okay. First of all, as it says here in verse uh, verse ten, and when he, they shall uh, make His soul an offering for sin, there is three things that happen. He shall see His seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall be prosper in his hand. Three things, basically. He will see his seed. In other words, he's not going to be cut off. That means he's going to live again. That's the idea. This suffering servant's not going to be cut off forever, folks. He's going to live again. So the three factors is this. He will have followers, not rejectors. When the, when the suffering servant is triumphant over death as a lamb to the slaughter, there's going to be folks that will follow him, first from Israel and from the rest of the world. So instead, remember, at his first coming, Christ was rejected. At his second coming, he'll be accepted. So that's what we have here. He will have followers, not rejectors. And the other thing he says, that he will prolong his days. He will have life, not death. And this is the resurrection, folks. That the Messiah, you want to look, who is the Messiah? That's why maybe Schneerson, the followers of Schneerson, they were saying, hey, maybe this guy will prolong his days, see his seed. Schneerson himself never had children. He and his wife never had children. Interesting. So he did not have any progeny, for example. But what's interesting is this. They waited outside of his grave for three days, and some are still doing that. You can go to his grave today, and you'll find people who are throwing prayers in and things like that, praying some type of blessing upon them. It's very, very interesting. But as he's talking about, this is a hope of a resurrection. Guess what? If you look 2,000 years ago, was there a Messiah that fit this bill and fit this image? There was. And I argue that's Jesus the Messiah. We also see that he will, have, he will live in the light of God's pleasure and prosperity rather than suffering and sorrow. The idea that he will have pleasure and prosper in the Lord's hand. In other words, before this servant went through the ringer, folks, suffered terribly. And now on the other end of that, he's resurrected. He has life again. And by the way, this is coming very uh, importantly at the end of uh, chapter 52. So as we see this, this is important. Now... Moving on a little bit. The second thing we saw, first of all, that the Messiah, the servant, will be restored. He'll be restored to life. And next, he will be satisfied because of his justification of sinners. This is why. Why did the suffering servant die? Why? He gave an offering for sin, but in verse 11 it says, He shall see the travail of a soul and be satisfied by the knowledge. Shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Very important. So, a couple things that we see from this. All right? How will be satisfied? First of all, the servant satisfied the heart of the Father. Jesus said, I came to do the will of him that sent me. Everything I did, that, that was pleasing to him. So very good. Jesus said in John 8, I always do those things that please the Father. So how then, where, where, uh, how then was he satisfied? First of all, he provided forgiveness for those who trust him. That's the big message. A lot of times when we witness to people, we talk to people, we talk about being saved from our sin, maybe getting hope of heaven, which that's true, but one of the blessing things about being saved, folks, is that we're forgiven. Think about that. When you witness to someone, make sure you tell them, Jesus Christ died to forgive sinners by his death on the cross. Don't overlook that. And by the way, even as believers, don't forget that. Praise God for that. So, he provided forgiveness to those who trust him. He will also justify many. Okay? He will make many righteous. Actually, in Hebrew, it's interesting. It's a play on words. The righteous one will make others righteous, is the idea. Beautiful in that regard. And he will also bear their iniquities. Okay? There's something I want us to do right now. I want us to go to Romans chapter 3. Turn over to Romans chapter 3. And as we've looked here carefully at, at Isaiah 53, especially the last two verses, I want us to look very carefully here at some other very important passages. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. Now, let me ask you this. When Paul is writing this, the Apostle Paul is writing this, did he make this up on his own? We're going to see very carefully, man, this sounds a lot like a passage we just read in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53. Look with me. It says here, Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. What prophet are we talking about? Isaiah, all of them, but we're going to look at Isaiah, okay? Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What does Isaiah 53 say? That all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Verse 24. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation, a substitute for us, through faith in his blood, declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past, For the forbearance of God. That's that trespass offering we just mentioned. To declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of them which believe in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It's excluded. By what law of works? Nay, but the law of faith. We Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is see, not also of the Gentiles, yes, of the Gentiles also. For that we should say amen. Yeah. <laughs> because here is a Jewish message that you see the, the threads that are going back and forth. Paul probably in his mind is having Isaiah 53, probably other passages too. But you see here that the one who makes sinners righteous is that servant who died for them in their place. And that's exactly what, what Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 3. Beautiful passage that we see here. The righteous one will declare those righteous. Folks, when you are saved, Jesus Christ declares you, that's, a, that's an order from the court, folks, the heavenly court, you are declared righteous. Very important as we see this here. The last part of this is that the, the servant will be rewarded because of his intercession on behalf. So the servant will be restored He'll be satisfied and he'll be rewarded. How will he be he rewarded? Look back in, in Isaiah 53, in verse 12. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors and bare the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressor. The idea that we have here in this, the fact that the Messiah will be rewarded, he'll divide a portion among the great, he'll divide the spoil or the plunder, I know my wife would appreciate that. He'll divide the plunder. What does this mean? Okay? Basically, the idea that we have is someone who has been victorious over their enemies. Like a game of chess, and the king is the only one left standing. That's the idea. The servant, the suffering servant, after everything he has gone through, he stands victorious over all of his enemies. That's the image that we have here. And then he will divide his spoil. What are the servant's reward? It's the redeemed, it's the great and the many that are here. And it's also the nations who are the strong and mighty. That's the servant's reward, that's the servant's inheritance, that's the spoil, that's the plunder he has. The portion that he gives, he shares it with them, then he shares it with those whom he has redeemed. Romans 8 says this, And have children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, we also may be glorified together. We share in that inheritance with the Lord. A servant was rewarded because of his voluntary death and identification with sinners. Look at with me in the middle of verse 12 that he poured out his soul unto death. The idea is that this servant gave everything. When Jesus was on the cross, I mean, there was not much left. Even they parted his garments. Jesus had nothing. He gave everything, even literally the shirt and the loincloth off of his body. There was nothing left to give. He gave everything. For that we should say amen. The servant was rewarded because of his voluntary death and his identification with sinners, the transgressors. The servant was rewarded because he bore the sins of many. 2 Corinthians says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And then we see that he then made intercession for sinners as a priest. Okay, go on here. There you go, just for you to see it. Those are the points I just covered without flipping the slide. Okay, and then here's the two ways that Jesus as a priest made intercession for sinners. On the cross itself, what did Jesus say? The first words out of his mouth were, Father, forgive them for they know what to do. That's what a priest does. He offers forgiveness as the intercessor. But praise God, Jesus Christ, as our intercessor, still makes intercession for us. Hebrews 7, wherefore he is able to also to save to the uttermost, that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for him. Jesus Christ is our great high priest. And he's interceding for us. Praise God for that. Jesus was obedient to death. Therefore God has also ex- highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Why was Jesus exalted? Because he was humbled. That's exactly what we see in Isaiah 53. You see how this fundamental, this foundation that we have affects every other part of scripture. Very important. Very important. The great message of Isaiah 53 is this, that God will bring glory and reward to a servant who endured a humiliating, horrific death to redeem sinners. As we said last time we were together, that F.B. Meyer, I love this quote, he says, There is only one brow upon which the crown of thorns will fit. There is only one true Messiah, folks. It's not Bar Kokhba. It's not Schneerson or anyone else you could think of throughout the ages. There is only one crown that will fit on, and that's Jesus the Messiah. We praise God. So here's the challenge today. Isaiah 53 challenges you to behold the triumphant servant who suffered and died in your place. He overcame death and offers redemption to sinners and forgiveness. So I encourage you, open up the Scriptures. Believe in the triumphant Messiah of Isaiah 53. Why? Because this chapter will change your life.